Welcome to the MHNR 2019 podcast, everyone. Uh, it's Andre here from Mental Health, and I'm here with Professor Fiona Nolan, uh, who has just given the opening keynote at this conference. Um, for those of you who don't know, Prof um, Fiona is the Florence Nightingale Foundation Clinical Professor of Mental Health Nursing. That is a long job it's a title. Long one. Yeah, it's a long <laughs> <laughs> at Essex University, mm -hmm. and um, you've been talking about your work in nurse education in Mongolia in a project that's kind of ongoing at the moment. But you said something at the end of your talk, Fiona, which I wanted to start with, which, which was, you asked a question, do we have a duty to offer assistance to low and middle income countries? So this is the kind of the crux mm -hmm. question in global mental health at the moment. What's, mm -hmm. your, what's your answer to that question? I think uh, healthcare professionals can, in this country and in high income countries, developed countries, can carry on to the end of their career without ever being a low-income country quite comfortably. Uh, but now that I've been to one of those countries, um, it sit, would sit very heavily with me to not to offer aid. And I think um, gov the governments are kind of obliged to offer aid under the, the programmes, the OECD programme, which I, I spoke about in my talk. Um, with the, the target, I think, is... 0.7% of GDP for developed countries is supposed to go towards development aid, and not very many countries meet that target. Um, but for us individuals, you know, bog standard nurses and doctors and psychologists, um, can we do anything? And I would never have thought I could have done anything until I went there uh, to low income country and, um, and subsequently been involved in a Zimbabwe uh, as well with colleagues I chair um, a Zimbabwean volunteers group who, who go and deliver training and I think I think we we do at the risk of sounding preachy and we, we, we do have a duty of care and I think healthcare workers uh, we're different in our we should be different to because of our training and because of our practice um, and we should be able to empathize with these people who have less than nothing we can't even imagine the 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 uh, conditions that they work under. Uh, I mentioned in my talk about nurses working on the, the acute psychiatric wards now in Mongolia. They're 40 bedded wards. When I first went there about five years ago, they had 55 patients per ward, and now it's gone up to 75 because of urban migration. And there's one nurse on those wards, one nurse and a couple of healthcare workers. And, and to work in such adverse conditions, um, I... I when I, I go there, I think, God, we, we can do very little and it would mean a lot. So by what we can do, um, big research grants, of course, that's where there's a lot of money these days. Usually they're led by medics and very difficult for nurses to access big grant funding like that or even to be part of big grant uh, programs. Um, so for people who want to help, there are programs like the Zimbabwe Life Project. It's a bunch of volunteers who go over and do training. Uh, for nurses deliver training on aspects of mental health care. Um, now, some people would say that that's not effective because they should just give money to the country and that could be used uh, as needed by the, the powers that be in that country. But I think that these people wanted to see where the money was going and or they wanted to see what they... to actively deliver something. So that suits them. Um, my contribution has been to try to get funding for education. So far I've, I've done that a little bit in, in this million euro um, Erasmus funded project to set up mental health nurse training in, that, in Mongolia. Um, other things, are, I managed to bring some Mongolians to the 
EU to the UK and they're going to go to Finland and the Netherlands to observe practice, to see how things are done in highly resourced countries. Now, again, there's a big, there is um, some controversy about that because there's a school of thought that thinks that that's exactly the wrong thing to do, to bring people who are extremely poor to a country where which is extremely rich in comparison and then say, this is how you should do it because they're never going to be able to do that. And, um, but I, I think that observing practice, observing community care, when they have no concept of community care, like in Mongolia, that helps. Um, then it's my job, I see it as my job, to help them to reconfigure what they can do with the tiny amount of money they have in Mongolia. So I think the duty of care individually for everyone working in the NHS, us altruistic, empathetic human beings, um, yeah, I think, I think we do, but how do you do it? Most people wouldn't have a clue. Um, and I would say contact me because I could always do with a bit of help. Uh, and there are, if you look, most most trusts now have um, altruistic programs, not most, but some have altruistic programs uh, with low-income countries where they set up a school or they contribute to a training program. So you can look for to your own NHS trust and charity um, and if not, look up to Google low-income country mental health UK input uh, and uh, or contact me, and I can use a lot of help with the Mongolian project right now. You spoke a lot about the situation in Mongolia um, that you've kind of witnessed over the last few years, the really difficult Mm. social situation and high levels of mental illness and big treatment gap. Mm. You know, most people are getting no help at all, Mm. massive levels of stigma. Mm. Um, Tell us a bit about what um, currently happens outside of the mental health system in Mongolia to help people who are really ill yeah I can tell you in, uh, nothing <laughs> nothing um, affluent people can access online counseling um, the WHO program to upskill primary care workers uh, focusing on the MH gap work um, that hasn't really been taken off in Mongolia that was something that I wanted to work towards as well but if you are not seriously mentally ill if you're not ill enough to get into a hospital, um, into the hospital, the only one, uh, then you are unlikely to receive any treatment. GPs can prescribe medication. They can prescribe it under the advice and guidance of the National Centre for Mental Health. They can refer people there for, for outpatient treatment, but um, it's very limited. They have a very limited, well, limited access to medication. They only had seven drugs that were on their list of accessible medications when I went there first, and they were all the old-style antipsychotics that we don't, you know, really use anymore, and um, or we try and avoid, because the other drugs were so expensive. And the drug companies charge more for Mongolia; they, they charge them more for uh, the medication than they do here. Um, but the mental health services, community mental health services, are non-existent. And that's a real shame, and I think that that's the area that needs to be developed. There are problems around that because of budgets. Um, Allocation of resource to community services means that it moves from one government budget to another, and, of course, the department that holds the budget doesn't want the money to go to another department. So there's there's some wrangling involved in that, which means that the population is a bit... you know, it, it suffers. So tell us a bit more about this moment project that you're working on in Mongolia you're trying to educate mental health professionals yeah yeah it sounds sounds grand they the mental health nurses um, don't have a standard training program in Mongolia 
people working in mental health services. So they, they graduate after they do a university degree in nursing and then they go and work in the psychiatric hospital, which is the, the old style asylum in the country. And uh, without, they might have had a week's experience, maybe uh, placement in their training, but otherwise not much. So they don't have, they start off with no skills. There's an in-house course of a couple of weeks in the, in the hospital. Uh, but otherwise the skills that they develop are kind of learned on the job, they're um, informed by uh, textbooks from China and Japan, but they don't have access really, they have access to the English journals because none of them speak English, they can't um, get the knowledge in them. Uh, so th some of this programme that I'm doing is in translating the Safe Words materials for example, we're translating them. Um, and translating small textbooks is really expensive, the, the translation program, but to try and give them access to the resources and to we're making them um, go on English language courses. And I myself am I'm learning Mongolian as well because I can't really ask them to learn English when I don't learn Mongolian. So the, the Moment project is um, three years and within those three years we, need, we want to develop a one-year postgraduate program um, which won't be a master's, it'll be postgraduate diploma in mental health nursing for, well we've got placements for 12 nurses to come to the EU to take part in observing practice here for a couple of weeks at a time uh, and to comment on the shaping of the programme. We hope that after the, the project it will be sustainable, that's going to be the tricky bit, whether it's sustained by the universities and as I mentioned in my talk, who will deliver it? because there are no mental health nurses at the moment working, or no people with mental health nursing experience working in the universities. So it's a kind of a catch-22 there. So some people from the UK who work in global mental health, who go and work in lower middle income countries, I've seen them talk and they, they, it, it feels to me like they are from a kind of colonial era, that they're going out to save these poor people with their white man knowledge. Yeah. How do you kind of, overcome that that you know you're an educated white yeah. academic yeah. from the UK yeah. that must be a really challenging thing to kind of make sure that you are yeah. being authentic yeah I think going in as a white educated um, academic but being a nurse bring, is a different perspective to going as a male and as a doctor so um, I nurses are crying well I'm not uh, in any way saying I'm leading the Mongolian nurses they're very capable of leading themselves and they have got they've got chief nurse they've got good leadership within their system but it's easier for me to access government than it is for them so I can go there and uh, I get the ear of the British Embassy and I get access to the Minister for Health uh, because of being a white uh, person from the UK and I can use that to my advantage and, and be their voice uh, but still I, I think the nurses I hope they see me as one of their own, especially mental health nurses, because they've never had that access before. They've never had um, anyone shout, being their voice, really. Um, so having so been through that in the last few years, uh -huh. what advice would you give to other people who are seeking to do similar? What are the barriers they need to overcome? Yeah, well, don't go over there and be the white man giving training to the poor indigenous population. Uh, although you know, that is still useful, and it's still, I can't knock it, because it's... Uh, still useful in some cases. Um, has to be culturally specific and very sensitive to the needs of the population. That's where you, they, you need to be careful. Um, advice I would give if you are wanting to do something is, is see what's happening locally first. 
don't go on your own because it'll be a waste of your time and money. You know, uh, you'd be better off giving your money to a charity, really. If you want to go uh, representing your organisation or a trust, if a trust wants to set up some kind of um, relationship with a low-income country, then go through the British Embassy in that country. The British Embassy have been the fulcrum of all my work there. Um, they have been the way in. When I first started going there, the ambassador was really interested in healthcare, and he wanted that to be his legacy, helping to improve healthcare in Mongolia. And it really is. Chris Stewart, um, all kudos to him. He he really did a great job. He got us over there first, and he laid the groundwork. So every time I'm there, meet with the embassy. If I have any problems, I get the ambassador to to come into meetings with me, and uh, that's powerful. So. That's one thing I would strongly recommend, is use your embassy. Um, another is do as much reading as you can about the political landscape. Don't go over there fully ignorant of the who's in power. Um, try and meet with, if you're in a, low-income countries have very accessible government. So um, it's my experience. It's easy to meet with people who are in the Ministry for Health. And I would try and make yourself known and make your aims known and see how you can see how they can direct your your assistance as well if you want to go over there and teach on i don't know um substance misuse but they've got no substance misuse problems in the in the country well then you're wasting your time so um be shaped in your target by the ministry and go through the ambassador they're two easy easy routes really and you're looking for help from people at this conference. Everyone's got a checklist that you're asking oh, yeah. people to fill in after your yeah. talk. Is that something that people listening to the podcast, people online, can contribute oh, to? They could do, actually. Yeah. How would I get it to them then? Um. We can tweet it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a very rough and ready um, checklist of potential components of a one-year postgraduate program for Mongolian for people in a low-income country. So. Bearing in mind, or the people who listen to the podcast probably don't have the benefit of the background, but try and give them an idea that the low-income country has very limited resources, mostly institutional care. Um, if you were trying to teach nurses or to give nurses skills to work within those limited resources, what would be the important things that you would tell them in a year-long programme? So we're looking at four modules. What should they focus on? And I've got a checklist and I've asked people to nominate their top four and cross out things they think aren't important. And that would really help us to, to shape what we do. Okay, we'll share that with this podcast with Fiona's email address. So yeah, please do fill that in if you've got your ideas. Great. Thanks a lot for chatting with us, Fiona. Uh, thank you.